0: Good morning. I'd like you to join me in your Bibles in James chapter 2. Heard a story about a man who was assigned to be an interim pastor of a church. He had never been to that church before. He had simply spoken to the leadership team on the phone and the week before his first message, he didn't shave. And on that Sunday morning, he didn't shower or brush his teeth He dressed in clothes that resembled those of a homeless person, dirty, stained, and worn. He went to a nearby grocery store and bought a bottle of beer and borrowed a shopping cart. He filled the shopping cart with aluminum cans and junk from the dumpster, and he poured the beer over his clothes. About ten minutes before the service was to start, he pushed the cart up to the front door of the church and came in and sat on the back pew pew. You could have heard a pin drop. His presence was met with looks of disdain, shaking heads and rolling eyes. And what would you expect? There was a bum in church. And he smelled awful. After a few awkward moments, to the relief of everyone, one of the ushers came over and asked him to leave. So he did. He went around the block, came back around in a side door and still dressed in the clothes of a homeless man. He walked up to the pulpit and preached on this passage. My brethren, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. For if a man comes into your assembly with a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, and there also comes in a poor man in dirty clothes, and you pay special attention to the one who is wearing the fine clothes, and say, you sit here in a good place. And you say to the poor man, you stand over there, or you sit down by my footstool. Have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil motives?" Now the phrase at the end of verse 1 means literally to receive by face. It's to judge by externals. It means to be prejudiced. And James says that when you and I put the poor man, the disabled man, the different colored man in the cheap seats, we are contradicting our profession of faith. It is inconsistent. It is incompatible to hold to faith in Jesus Christ and prejudice toward other people. And to add some teeth to that, he elaborates in verse 4 by telling us it is hypocritical. He says, you have made distinctions. That's the same word he used back in chapter 1 and verse 6. You are wavering. You are doubting. You are tossed about. You are like the double-minded man facing both directions. You are two-faced. It is hypocritical. And then secondly, he tells us it's evil. Ironically, when you judge someone on the surface, it is not a surface problem for you. It is a motive. And James says your motive is evil. I hope you realize from this passage that prejudice is not a minor faux pas. Don't write it off in your life by saying everybody does it, or I was raised this way, or I just think it, I don't say it. When you size someone up and put them in their place based on appearance, based on first impressions, based on wealth, based on skin color, James says you are a hypocrite. Because you are saying I have faith in Jesus who accepts everyone, but I only accept people like me or people that I like. You're a hypocrite. And James says you are evil. Because what is the motive behind prejudice well, it's really twofold. It's pride and selfishness, which are, is the two basic motives in sin. Those are the motives of Satan when he first sinned. Pride, because I say I'm better than the poor man. Selfishness, because I say maybe the rich man will give me something. Now, when that interim pastor, who had just been thrown out, stood up and preached this message... <laughs> You think they got it? Let me ask you a more important question for you this morning. Have you got it? You see, it's obviously a big deal for you and me to get it. Because James doesn't stop at this point in this passage. He keeps going all the way down to verse 13. And he gives us four reasons why we cannot hold on to faith in Jesus and prejudice toward other people. And I want to go over those four reasons with you. The number one reason James gives us is a theological reason in verses 5 and 6. He says, listen, my beloved brethren, did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? but you have dishonored the poor man. My prejudice goes against God's elective purpose. My prejudice goes against God's choice. Have you ever noticed that God never chooses the way we would choose? When he wants to pick a leader to lead Israel out of Egypt, he chose a stuttering exiled murderer. We, when he wanted a king for Israel, he chose the smallest of Jesse's sons. When he wanted a woman to bear the very Son of God in her womb, he, poor, he chose the poor fiance of a carpenter. When he wanted the most influential apostle of all, he chose a hate-breathing Christian killer. And here, James tells us he chose the poor. Jesus said in Luke 4, 18, he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. And to accomplish that, Jesus didn't just put on poverty for a couple hours like that interim pastor. He put on poverty for 33 years. He he was not born with a silver spoon in his mouth. He was not born into wealth. He was not born in a castle. He was born in a borrowed stable. He borrowed a little boy's lunch to feed the crowd. He preached from borrowed boat. He said, the foxes have holes and the birds have nests. I have nowhere to lay my head. When he wanted to illustrate a point, he had to borrow a coin. He borrowed a donkey to ride into Jerusalem. He borrowed a room to celebrate the Passover. He died on a borrowed cross. It belonged to Barabbas and you and me. And they buried him in a borrowed tomb. It belonged to Joseph of Arimathea. You see, God sent Jesus to be poor so that he might reach the poor. And I want you to notice something out of this verse. God wasn't forced to settle for the poor. He deliberately chose the poor. They have a special place in God's heart. Now this verse throws a wrench into the popular teaching of prosperity theology. If you're not familiar with that, good. This is the teaching that says God wants everyone to be rich. And if you walk with God and give financially, you will be blessed and prosper financially. See, if that teaching were true, then all the slaves in the New Testament church would be carnal. Which made up most of the New Testament church. They couldn't own anything. So they must have been carnal. Most of the people today who are believers in third world countries must be carnal. Because they don't have BMWs raining down on them. Listen, everything is wrong with a theology that says you can measure a person's spiritual condition by how much money they have in the bank. And many people are being duped today by speakers and by books that tie prosperity to theology. That is wrong. There is nothing wrong with prospering financially. There is everything wrong with saying that God guarantees that. Some of God's choicest servants in the Bible had nothing. The widow that gave everything she had had nothing. Yet she will be great in the kingdom of God. And if you notice here, James doesn't say that God chose the poor to be rich in material goods. James says that the poor person who is a believer is only poor in one aspect, and that is toward this world. From God's perspective, he is rich in faith, and he is an heir of the kingdom. The poor person is rich in faith. The money in your pocket that says in God we trust actually competes with your trust. When Jesus said you can't serve two masters, which master did he choose? God and money, because that is a primary master. If you don't master your money, your money will master you. That's why Jesus said it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Why? Because a rich person tends to trust in his riches, and he can't let go. That's why Jesus said to the rich young ruler, sell everything you have and give it to the poor and come and follow me. Now that's not a formula for everyone, but it was a formula for him because that money was his god, little G. It was his idol and Jesus said you've got to cut the head off your idol if you're going to come follow me. The poor person in contrast has nothing in his hands. And so his hands are free to embrace the glorious Lord Jesus Christ. He says the poor man is rich in faith. He says he's an heir of the kingdom. James says the one you're looking down on, the one you're making sit on the floor is an heir. You're impressed with that gold ring on the rich man. guess what? That's going to be asphalt in the kingdom of God. You want to be impressed with somebody? Be impressed with the heir of that kingdom. He's sitting at your feet. You see, when I despise a brother because he's poor, I am demonstrating that I don't understand true wealth. Because the greatest treasure on this earth is faith in Jesus Christ. And I'm also uh, demonstrating that I don't understand true honor. Because the guy that I'm making sit at my footstool is going to be seated with Christ at the right hand of God. And so the first reason is theological. My prejudice goes against God's elective purpose. Second reason James gives us is rational. And that is my prejudice goes against logic. Look at the end of verse 6. He asks three questions. Is it not the rich who oppress you and personally drag you into court? Do they not blaspheme the fair name by which you have been called? James says it doesn't make any sense for you to respect a person simply on the basis of riches because it's the rich person in the first century who oppressed believers took them to court, and blasphemed the Lord's name. Why are you worrying about impressing them when they obviously are not worried about impressing you? That's not logical. This guy who oppresses you and is suing you, taking you to court, walks in, and simply because he's rich, you're showing him special favor. You are elevating someone simply because he has riches who actually blasphemes the name above all names. If I ask you today, who's your favorite athlete or who's your favorite movie star, who's your favorite musician? Some of you may have a poster of them on your room. Sometimes we elevate people who, in interviews and in their personal life, blaspheme the Lord Jesus, the very one you say is the center of your life. You see, when we do that, we ignore what really matters, a person's character, and we exalt what doesn't matter, a person's wealth or their fame or their talent. That's not rational. And then he gives a third reason, a biblical reason, verses 8 to 11. And that is that my prejudice goes against God's law. It is sin. Now I think at this point in time, James is anticipating that the audience is going to respond a certain way. And they're going to make an excuse and they're going to say, well the reason we showed favor to this rich guy is because we were simply trying to keep the law. Because the law says in Leviticus 19, 18, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So here's what James says. Notice verse 8. If, however, you are fulfilling the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. If that's what you're doing, you're doing well. Now, he calls it here the royal law. Why does he call it that? Because the king said this was the most important law, right? Right? said you can sum it all up with two laws, love the Lord your God with all your heart, love your neighbor as yourself. So Jesus summed this up, so James calls it the royal law. If you're fulfilling that law, great, you're doing well. But, verse 9, if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. If you're showing partiality, it's sin, and the very law you claim to be keeping convicts you. They were all about Leviticus 19.18. Love your neighbor as yourself. You know what it says three verses earlier than that? Leviticus 19.15 says, you shall not be partial. Hmm. What they were doing was picking and choosing. We like this law. We don't like that law. You ever do that in your Christian life? I'm doing all these things that God wants me to do. It really doesn't matter that I'm prejudiced. It really doesn't matter that I'm partial. It really doesn't matter that I'm making certain people sit at my feet on the floor. If you think that way, verse 10 is for you. Look at it. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he has become guilty of all. Let's suppose you run a red light. They stop you, give you a ticket, say you can show up in court if you want to, or you can pay the ticket. You show up in court. The judge says to you, "How do you plead? Are you guilty or not guilty?" And you say your honor?" As far as I can discern, there are about 3,570 laws in the United States that I'm asked to keep. And to the best of my knowledge, I obey 3,569. It's just these red lights that bug me. I I stop at stop signs. I yield at yield signs. I don't jaywalk. I, I do everything. It's just the red lights that I have a problem with. How many laws do you have to break to be a a lawbreaker? How many crimes do you have to commit to be a criminal? See, a lot of us view the law as a pile of stones, and if we take one out, it still stands. James says, no, it is a pane of glass, and if you break it in one spot, you shatter the whole thing. He says, if you break one, you've broken them all. My wife's not here, so I'll tell on her. She loves to shop. I hate it when she takes me into one of those shops with the little china and the blown glass and stuff, and the the aisles always seem narrower than the other stores, and you're walking through there, and if you pick something up, you're, like, really nervous about it, and can you imagine picking up a a piece of china and dropping it, and, and it cracks, and you pick it up, and you take it up to the counter and say, you know, most of it, It's still good. It's just this little spot that got cracked. You know what the shopkeeper will say to you? I know from experience. (laughs) He'll point to a sign behind the counter. It's sometimes posted all over the walls. It says, if you break it, you bought it. Well, we come to God and say, most of it I'm okay in. I'm okay in this area, I'm okay in this area. I just had this one little crack. It's prejudice toward other people. And God's going to say, you broke it, you bought it. We use this verse, if you break one law, you've broken it all. I use it in in sharing the gospel with people sometimes to say, hey, you can't keep the law because if you break it in one spot, you've broken it all. But in its context, who's he talking to? He's talking to believers. And what is the one sin that he's talking about? He's talking about that one sin that seems to trip us up so often. It's that sin of prejudice. It's that sin of judging other people on the basis of externals. Look at verse 11. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but you do commit murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. The reason you broke it all is because the same God gave it all. The same God who said, you shall not commit adultery, said, you shall not commit murder. The same God who said, love your neighbor as yourself, said, do not be partial. Can you imagine standing before the Lord one day and saying, I did kill that guy, but I want you to know I didn't make out with his wife. Some of us intend to stand before the Lord one day and say, I was prejudiced, but I want to point out I didn't lie to that guy. I didn't steal from that guy. I didn't cheat that guy. James is saying all the laws are equal. All the sins are equal. Prejudice is just as bad murder. It's sin. It's sin. And then the fourth reason is a personal reason in verses 12 and 13. We need to treat others in light of the fact that we will one day stand before God. And on that day, we will not be the judger. We will be the judgeee. And there are going to be two standards that God uses for believers on that day. The first is his mercy. And the second is your mercy. Notice what he says here. First, his mercy, verse 12. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty. I love that phrase. The law of liberty, the law that sets you free. What is the law of liberty? Well, it's really synonymous with the royal law in verse 8, love your neighbor. And I want to suggest to you that the law of liberty is what God's mercy does to the Old Testament law. It changes it from a law of rules to a law of relationships. It goes from rules that say, do this or you'll die, to relationships that say, love the Lord your God with all your heart, love your neighbor as yourself, and that sums up the whole thing. It moves from rules to relationships by his mercy, because the New Testament tells us that Jesus fulfills the law, and it tells us in Galatians that he nailed the law to the cross of Jesus. So it's no longer a bunch of rules that I can't possibly keep. It is now transformed into the law of liberty that I can keep by the Spirit of God in me. And it's not about rules anymore. It's about a relationship with him and with others. And in typical James fashion, he says, So speak and so act. Don't just talk about it. Walk it. And then there's a second thing. In judgment, it's going to be based on his mercy. Secondly, it's going to be based on my mercy. And I think a lot of us miss this. And I want you to see it in verse 13. He says, For judgment will be merciless to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Now, this is a principle that Jesus laid out in Luke 6.38. He said, by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. Your standard of measure, whatever you use to measure out to other people, it will be measured to you. Now, what was he talking about there? Well, in that verse, it talks about giving. So most of us say it's giving. But if you read the verse before, he's talking about several other things. He's talking about how you judge others how you condemn others, how you forgive others, and how you give. In other words, how you treat other people. Whatever you use as your measuring stick for judging other people, condemning other people, forgiving other people, or giving to other people is going to be the measuring stick that Jesus uses when you stand before him. Two questions will be critical at that time. When he asks me, how do you plead, guilty or not guilty, I'm going to say I'm guilty, but I plead the mercy of Jesus. And that's the only thing I've got because I've got nothing else. But then he's going to say, all right, I'm going to measure you by the measuring stick that you use to measure other people. Does that intimidating? See, James says, if you show no mercy, your judgment will be merciless. If you show mercy, your judgment will be triumphant. When he judges you, it's not going to be about external things. It's going to be about an internal thing. And that internal thing is the mercy that you show to others. So judging according to externals is inconsistent with my faith in the Lord Jesus because there's a theological reason he chose the poor. There's a logical reason the rich oppress you. There's a biblical reason it is sin just as much as murder. And there's a personal reason you are setting the measuring stick today for your future judgment. Now in closing, I want to apply this passage. And I want to apply it in two areas riches and race. First of all, riches. Now, sometimes I wonder how we would receive the Lord Jesus if he walked in here. He was a carpenter, he was a blue collar kind of guy. If you shook hands with Jesus, his hand was calloused, it had splinters. Today, he would be more comfortable in overalls than anything else. He was born on the wrong side of the track. He was born in Nazareth. Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? He was a nobody from nowhere. He was homeless, like the interim pastor who sat on the back pew. He had nowhere to lay his head. And he usually had 12 friends with him who smelled like fish. The Bible says they were ignorant and unlearned. Not very impressive. See, we need to learn that we are to honor a person not by his standing in society, but by his standing before God. Not by the riches in his bank account, but by the riches of his faith in Jesus Christ. Then the second area is race. I grew up in Nashville, Tennessee. I've seen a lot of prejudice. I know white churches that don't welcome blacks. And if you ask them why... They will say, well, if we allow blacks into this white congregation, then the people in the community will be turned off and they won't come. What's wrong with that argument? That argument is basing its conclusion on what the world thinks. Rather than what the Word of God says. Society doesn't like to hear about sin. Should I stop talking about it? Because it might offend them? Society doesn't like our value system. Should we change it to accommodate them so they'll come here? Society doesn't like the doctrine of salvation by faith alone in Jesus Christ, it's just too narrow. Should we broaden it? And yet when it comes to race, there are people who set their standard by what the world thinks rather than what the Word of God says. And the Word of God is clear. We are not to judge others by externals. Right before this chapter, in chapter 1 and verse 27, James says that true religion is keeping oneself unspotted by the world. And it is the world that makes distinctions on the basis of external things. You are never more worldly than when you are prejudiced. When you judge another on the basis of his skin color, you know who you're really judging? God. Because we are all made in his image. So when I criticize it, who am I criticizing? When I laugh at it, who am I laughing at? When I mock it, who am I mocking? I love Numbers chapter 12. Moses marries a Cushite woman. Cush is used interchangeably with Ethiopia. Cush was located south of Egypt in Africa. The word Cush literally means burnt by the sun. So Moses married a black woman. And it says, Miriam and Aaron, his older brother and sister, spoke against him because he did that. Now some people say, They spoke against him because he was marrying a woman outside of Israel, but that can't be true. She must have been a proselyte to Israel because God sides with Moses in this situation. Now, most family disputes God doesn't show up in. I'm kind of thankful for that. But they're having this family dispute, and they're saying you're wrong to marry that woman whose skin is burnt by the sun. And God shows up. And he calls all three of them out of, outside of the group of people. And he makes a decision. And his decision is he gave Miriam leprosy. And if you read the passage, it says she had leprosy and she was white as snow. I love God's humor. Like, you, you like white? I'll give you white. You, you want to be segregated? You're outside the city. Was leprosy. And I think God was making a statement about how he feels about that. Last time I checked, God only gives one qualification for marriage it's not riches, it's not skin color. It's the end of First Corinthians chapter seven, it says, "In the Lord." But sadly, as I listen to some professing Christian parents, I get the impression they would rather their child marry a rich sinner than a poor saint. They would rather their child marry a white sinner than a black saint. That's tragic. When you put your personal prejudice over the Word of God. In Galatians chapter 2, Peter comes to Antioch. He's had his vision of the sheet coming down with all the unclean animals and had to have the vision three times to get it, that all the food is okay now, that God has turned the law into the law of liberty, and that God is no respecter of persons. And now he comes to Antioch, which is Gentile area, and uh, it says he eats with the Gentiles, which means he had his first ham sandwich. had to be delicious. You're going to have a barbecue? Barbecue pork. Wow, first time. It's really good. So he's eating with the Gentiles, enjoying himself there, and then it says some Jews showed up from Jerusalem. Peter backed away from the Gentiles and quit eating with them. Paul arrives. He says, Galatians chapter 2, I confronted Peter to his face and I called him a hypocrite. And then he says this. Check it out. Galatians 2.14, he said, Peter was not being straight forward about the truth of the gospel. And that word straightforward is the Greek word orthopodia, from which we get our word orthopedic. He was not walking straight. He was walking contrary to the truth, walking contrary to the gospel. You see, it's not a light thing to make distinctions among people. It's not a light thing to be prejudiced. It contradicts the gospel because the gospel of Jesus Christ is the thing that tears all the barriers down. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the thing that takes us all from every tribe and tongue and nation and makes us one in him. And if you and I cannot demonstrate love and acceptance that supersedes elitism, that supersedes sectarianism, that supersedes denominationalism, that supersedes racism, then where is the world going to find it? And why would they bother listening, listening to our gospel when it's not working for us? Mahatma Gandhi, when he was a student in India, went to a Christian church because he was enamored by Christianity. And he believed it could solve the caste problem in India. But when he went there, the ushers told him, you need to worship with your own kind. And so he left that church that day and wrote, This in his memoirs, if Christianity has a caste system too, I might as well stay a Hindu. What might have happened with Mahatma Gandhi if somebody had said to him, welcome. We have the glorious Lord Jesus Christ that we would like to introduce to you. You know, I'm not prejudiced toward roaches, I treat them all equally. I have a policy. I step on them. And if I fail to step on them, my wife screams at me to step on them. I never see a roach and go, Oh, that's a cute roach. I think he, he's cleaner than the others. I think I'll make a cage and No. I have come to the conclusion that all roaches deserve to die. You know what my Bible tells me? All have sinned. And we all deserve to die. And the only thing that keeps me from dying is the mercy of God expressed in Jesus Christ. And I am convinced, we're going to close with communion, taking the bread and the cup. I am convinced that you cannot come in honesty and humility to the foot of the cross and be prejudiced. Because you're coming saying, I'm a sinner, and I deserve to die. And so as we take communion today, I'm going to ask us to appreciate the mercy of God what he's done for us and his forgiveness in the cross, but also I want you to examine yourself and realize that you have no standing to be able to judge anybody else because apart from his mercy, you would be lost and damned. Let's appreciate his mercy, but let's let it flow out to others because that's his desire for you and me. Let's pray. Father, thank you for Jesus. The only reason we gather to worship him, to worship you, to praise you for what you've done for us. As we do what he told us to do, we take this bread and cup, we remember that he became poor so that we, through his poverty, might be rich. We remember your mercy expressed in the cross because we don't deserve it. And Lord, as we express our praise and appreciation, I pray you would humble our hearts today. If we need you to put your finger on an area in our life, in the area of prejudice that needs to be yielded to you, that we would yield it up. And, Lord, we would be those that go from here treating others with forgiveness and giving because that's the way you've treated us. We love you and we thank you. In Jesus' worthy name, amen.